What comes to your mind when you hear the word pride? You know, over the years, I believe that pride has become kind of an umbrella word. That is, uh, it's an umbrella under which there live a number of different definitions and meanings, some positive, some negative. Uh, When a football team or or a volleyball team says, hey, today we are going to play for pride, you know, it's positive. What they're saying is, hey, we want to we want to do well for the university we represent, the school we represent, the state we represent. It's a good thing. So it's kind of the good side of the word. Uh, when a parent says to a child, I am proud of you, they're lifting up an accomplishment. It's a, it's a good thing. But I think we're all aware of the fact that there's also a dark side to the word, uh, a negative side. Uh, sometimes we associate the word pride with narcissistic tendencies. Uh, there's a reason that pride is listed as one of the seven deadliest sins of our culture. Today in God Size Living, this podcast, we're going to be taking a look at what I consider to be one of the most powerful emotions on planet Earth, and that that is the emotion of pride. And I, I want to raise a few questions up. Let's just start with the what question. Like, what exactly is pride? If we were talking to a social scientist today, how would they describe it? What words would they use? Is it emotion? Is it a behavior? Is it autonomic, something that we're born with, or is it ingrained into us? How do they describe it? Secondly, let's, let's talk about when. This is an interesting question to me, an, an important one. When, when do we cross over that line that separates positive and negative pride? When, when do I move between pride being something good and and into that place where it becomes maybe even destructive for me or for other people. I think there's a fine line there. I want to ask that question. And then I want to think together a little bit theologically. Is there a theology of pride as we look at the Bible? I'm going to tell you a little bit what got me thinking about uh, our topic today is a book I read this past summer simply titled Killing Hitler. I don't know if you're aware of Bill O'Reilly and his, I call it, killing series, but in my opinion, over the last 10 years, O'Reilly has done one of the best jobs of researching the minds of past monsters, whether he's looking into the mind of a John Wilkes Booth who assassinated Abraham Lincoln or uh, Oswald who assassinated John F. Kennedy. Uh, whether he's studying the emperor of Japan, Hirohito, during the Second World War, many of us believe responsible uh, based on his thirst, right? His expansionist thirst for the death of millions of people. But, but I think as you read his books, if there's one name that stands above all the monsters, if there's one name that we associate pretty quickly with what it means to be evil, it would have to be Adolf Hitler. What, what happened to Hitler? How did he become the person that he became? And I think it's interesting when you read O'Reilly's book, he really gets into the place that pride plays in Hitler's life. He makes a distinction, if you will, between two things, national pride and nationalism. National pride is good, but nationalism is pride gone bad. It's when a group of people begin to believe that they are superior to and better than other people. Remember that, that Hitler believed that the Jews were genetically different than other human beings, and that, that they were evil, that the only good thing that could happen to them was extermination. And he sold that to, to Nazi Germany. Uh, we believe that nationalism 
pride gone wrong, really played a big role in the German citizenry actually turning their heads while over 5 million Jews were killed uh, during the, the Holocaust. And what I want you to think about with me is as we come back into the book of Daniel, we're going to turn today to chapter 4. I want you to see that pride is present in the life of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, last week, we left Nebuchadnezzar at a place where he has experienced one of the greatest miracles in, in all of history. He has literally watched three Judean men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, walk out of a 2,000-degree furnace alive. Not even their, their hair is singed. And, and we, we get to this point where you're looking at Nebuchadnezzar and you're thinking to yourself, this is got to be the point where he finally believes, where he finally lets go of his stubbornness and says, wait a minute, this, this doesn't just happen. There's, there's, there's a God present uh, where he comes to faith. And yet, as we continue reading chapter three and enter into chapter four, we realize something that no, no, he does not come to faith. And it breaks our hearts. And I'll tell you why. Because we have them in our life. We've got Nebuchadnezzar's in our life, whether it's a family member or a close friend, someone that you work with, people who you know, who you've watched over their lifetime come close to faith, but they just don't get there and it breaks your heart. We're all cheering for Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what happens. As you turn the page to chapter four, 14 years pass between the furnace incident and the beginning of chapter four. And here's what we discover that God is still present and he's still at work, and he's still trying to just break this stubborn pride inside of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I want you to kind of pay attention to, to the narrative. We're going to read it here in just a moment. But what I want you to see is this is the second dream that God brings into Nebuchadnezzar's life. Remember the first dream uh, was a dream about a statue, and God was warning Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, stop being so pr proud proud, so prideful. You, you think your kingdom is going to last forever. It's not. It's going to fall. And it ultimately does fall to the nation of, of Persia. In this second dream, I think it gets more intense. And, and what's happening is you can see with the passing of time, uh, the passing of hope. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know it, but he's towards the end of his life. And God is desperate to just break this, this stubbornness in him. Uh, I want to read to you the dream and its interpretation. This is a, a pretty good chunk of scripture, uh, but I want you to hear it. And I, I want you to ask yourself this question. What is God trying to do as he brings this dream into Nebuchadnezzar's life? Uh, this is Daniel chapter four. I just want to pray, Lord, that you would give us some insight into these words and what they have to do with pride, even even in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm, I'm in verse number 20. And Daniel 4, verse 20, it says, this is the dream. He says, um, the tree that you saw, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream starts with a tree, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which there was food for all under which all the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of heavens live. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, it is you. You're the tree, O king, and you've grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the kings, second part of the dream, because the kings saw a watcher in the dream, there's a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. So just think about that. Uh, he sees in his dream a, a tree, a watcher, that's an angel, who says, chop it down, destroy it, but put a band of iron around the stump. The stump is going to survive, and the stump is going to be wet with dew, and it's going to be with the beasts of the field, during which a seven-time period will, will pass. Okay, so what is that? Well, here is Daniel's interpretation. Daniel says, O king, this is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you, Nebuchadnezzar, shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you will be wet with the dew of heaven. You're, you're that stump. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. Practice righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Um, I, I don't know what happens in your mind when you hear that dream, but, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see a God of grace at work. Now, most people won't see that. A lot of people read this and they're like, what kind of what kind of God would do this to a human? God takes the king, a man to whom people bow down, a man to whom nations pay tribute and taxes, a man who, in whose presence people shudder. He takes that king and literally causes him to become a beast in the field. Nebuchadnezzar goes from sitting on his throne to literally, this is literal, being out in a field with cows mooing. Now, I think about this. Politicians in our world today, they've got spin doctors, right, that, that help them prop up their reputation and prop up their personal brand. But listen, there's not a spin doctor in the world that can help you. When, you're, when everybody's walking by you and you are kneeling down on all fours going moo, moo in a field, there's nothing that can help you. God is humiliating Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he hates them? No. You know what this is? It's a story of grace. It's a God who says, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar? Pride is killing you. It's killing you. It's destroying you. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try one last time to break the stubbornness of your heart that you might come to know me. And I think that this scripture raises some questions for us today. I don't believe this is in the Bible just for us to look at it and say, oh, well, poor guy, he became a cow. 
I don't think so. I think it's put in the scriptures for us to step back and ask two critical questions. Question number one, um, where is pride getting in the way of God's will and God's plans for, for my life? I think we need to ask that. This is not just a story about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, being a big C.S. Lewis fan, uh, the English theologian, I uh, find it interesting to read what he has to say about pride in his book, Mere Christianity. Just listen to these words. C.S. Lewis says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil on earth is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison it was though through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and in every family since the world began. I've got to say this uh, over my years serving in the ministry. I have watched pride do so much damage in people's lives. I've watched pride destroy marriages. Destroy them. Well, she said that. Well, he said that. I'm, I'm going to do that. She better do this. And, and people just become prideful. And I'm not bending until the other person bends and finally the marriage breaks. I've seen pride destroy friendships. I've seen pride destroy churches. I've seen it take down not just political leaders, but spiritual leaders as well. And, and you can't help but read this, this scripture today. And, and if we're going to be honest and, and vulnerable before God, ask the question, you know, where is it in my life? Where, where is pride in, in me today? And, and then the second question, question two, why is it so hard for me to see? I mean, the reality is, if you were to, to ask me today, hey, Luke, do you have pride in your life? I wouldn't hesitate to say, well, of course I do. But here's something prideful. I might think deep, deep within myself, I might think, yeah, I've got pride in my life, but it's not as bad as that person's. <laughs> How's that for pride? The reality is that it does show up. It shows its head, but in just little ways. You know, when somebody says something that we think is disrespectful and we, we strike back at them, there's pride. Or when, when, when I find myself in an argument and I have to be right, there's, there's pride. When, when I look at my boss or, or somebody who has authority over me, and I go, you know what? I'm not doing what you have. Who, who do you to tell me? There's, there's pride. I think we all know we have it. But why is it really to the depth, to the depth that really we're seeing in this, this story of Daniel, why is it so hard for us to see and grasp? Uh, I think about King David here, uh, inarguably the greatest king in, in all of Israel's history, who, who commits a sin, and what is it that prevents him from confessing that sin? You, you know what it is? It's pride. And it's in every one of us. You know what it takes for, for David to finally come to a place where he says, God, I, I blew it. I need your help. It takes, it takes a friend coming to him. It takes, it takes a prophet coming to him. 
And I want to tell you today that we have a friend who comes to us. His name is the Holy Spirit. You know what he does in our lives? He taps us on the shoulder and he says, put it down. Put that pride down. Come before God just to acknowledge. God, you know what? I don't have my act together. You're right. I'm, I'm the problem in this marriage. You know what? I, I'm, the, I'm the problem in this organization. And, and God, here's the honest truth is pride. I don't have the power to overcome it, but you do. And give it to God and let him put it to death before it puts you to death. Well, that's it for today. We're going we're gonna to continue our journey into chapter four of Daniel next week. Uh, this is Thanksgiving week as I record this. I, I, I want to pray for you and for your families that God bless you in this week. I'm going to ask that you pray uh, for me as well. Um, it's it's going to be a great week. And, and my prayer for you as we, as we sign off is that God will give you a God-sized week as we move ahead. We'll see you next week. God bless you.